Ephesians chapter 1, uh, and we are going to read together again, starting in verse 3 down to 14. Uh, and this morning, as I said, we're going to look ultimately at the last um, four verses there, verses 11 to 14, and the blessings of God, ultimately this spiritual inheritance that is ours in Christ. But let's start by reading Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of that possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Responses to the idea uh, or possibility of an inheritance bring a mixed bag of emotions today. Um, in fact, right now it'd probably be bad taste uh, to ask about an inheritance, to ask you if you've received one or if you have one coming. It's certainly bad taste to ask your parents if, you got one, if they've got one ready for you. Uh, and I think the only explainable reason for this is because inheritance vary widely, uh, from unimaginable wealth to crippling debts, from honorable names and good reputations to legacies that you can only hope will never follow you or your children around. None are guaranteed, none are truly known, and a few are without drama. I was browsing around actually for some, um, I was looking for, because I, I feel like I've heard these before, but I was trying to find accounts of them, some of those real-life ironic stories about rich kids that sit in a room with a lawyer anticipating this large inheritance that they're going to get from their father who's passed away, only to hear the lawyer explain all the debts that they're going to incur and all the headaches that they're going to have to deal with in order to settle all those debts. Um, what I learned, actually, is that those will readings, those scenarios, are mostly a Hollywood invention. Um, that usually doesn't happen. But nevertheless, the image, I think, is an interesting one, and I think it actually helps us to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul is like one of those fictitious lawyers, or maybe like an estate manager who's sitting down with the children of God, and he's describing all that the Father has, all of the riches of his wealth that he wills or he desires to give to his children. And Paul has already described for us blessing upon blessing upon blessing that is ours in Christ. Holiness, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, understanding, participation ultimately in his eternal purposes. And I think now he really just says, actually, you know what? God is just going to give you everything. He's going to give his adopted children, those that he predestined for this very thing, 
This is the destiny. That's what that word means, predestined. This is the destiny that was established for God's children by God before the foundations of the world, that he's going to give you everything. As great as it might be to inherit a hundred million dollars or a house or a pen collection, how much greater is it to have everything? This is what we have in Christ. Together as his children and heirs, we have ultimately what is his, which is all things, everything. He says it right here. If we read again, starting in verse, verse 11, he says, In him we've also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who, are already, who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you also believed, were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession, or the possession of that inheritance to the praise of his glory. So we're just going to look at three things. We'll look at three things. We'll look at the nature of our inheritance, what it is. We're going to look at the security of our inheritance. How can we know that we are going to receive it? And then third, we're going to look at the proper response of his heirs. So first, the nature of our inheritance. This verse actually gives us it doesn't give us very many details, so uh, we'll go to a few other places to understand what it is, but it does say that it is in Christ that we have it. So our inheritance, this is something we've repeated over and over, our inheritance is not from Christ. It is not through Christ. Our inheritance is not something that he receives and then just sort of turns over and passes on to us. It's actually, it's actually in Christ. Paul says in another place that we are co-heirs with Christ. It's actually our identification and our union with Christ. Christ that allows us to receive the lavish blessings that are given ultimately to Christ. That's the only way that we receive this. And it tells us something of the nature of it, that what is Christ's it is, is ours. We are sharing an inheritance with the firstborn Son of God. We are sharing an inheritance with the Creator and the Possessor of everything. So where do we see, I think, this first idea of an inheritance, but in my favorite place, the Garden of Eden that small place in the larger world that God gave to man to live, to work, and to fulfill his created purposes. And there man inherited ultimately a home that wasn't his, but he was also given authority that wasn't his and dominion over a creation that wasn't his. This authority is something that he never earned and never gained on his own, but it was handed to him. And he didn't just give him the garden, he commissioned Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden, to grow the garden, right? It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Adam was made in God's image, which means he inherited his divine likeness. Despite being made of dirt, God gave him a likeness and a, a character and a nature that wasn't his, a place that wasn't his, a purpose that he didn't determine, authority that wasn't his, and ultimately the commission to, and the, the, um, the permission to go and claim the rest of the earth for himself. In the garden, man inherited everything. We know when you talk about inheritance, obviously the most immediate thing that comes to mind in our context is, is money or wealth or an estate or something like that. But we know also that we don't just inherit that from our parents. We don't just inherit material wealth. We inherit our parents' looks. We inherit their name. We inherit their temperaments. We inherit their talents. We inherit their health. We inherit their decisions and the consequences of their decisions. We inherit their relationships, whether good or bad. 
in many ways, we inherit their faith. We inherit their stories and their history. My sons, for better or worse, have inherited me. They might not be aware of this now, but someday they will see me in them. And I hope it doesn't frustrate or discourage them. I say, Bear, you're welcome for your size and deceptive speed. I'm sorry for your short temper. But man inherited from God, like we said, a place, a purpose, authority, and ultimately God's own image and likeness, and then the whole earth and all of creation. Think of this prodigal son parable that we just read, okay? I'm convinced that some of the deepest ideas of theology and our understanding of God and man are hinted at and described in some measure in that parable. But what was the son's sin? What was the son's sin? I think we could probably list several things, right? He insulted his father, considered him as dead. He left his family and his home. He lived loosely and foolishly and recklessly. But I think this is what it is. Ultimately, I think the core of his sin is here. That one, he demanded his share, which is interesting that the story never suggests that he had no right to it. In fact, the father easily complies. It says that he took what was his over and over. It actually talks about it the way that he spent what was his. It never refers to the estate that he had as anything but his own, the son's. It doesn't say that he stole it or that it wasn't rightfully his. It was his. But we know from the story, because it makes it plain, that everything that the son has, everything the son has, was given to him by his father. So the father can actually say to the older son later, who's angry, he says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That's the state of relationship and union and possession that the younger son left and rejected. And the parable is ultimately about us. It's about all of mankind. And from the garden, man has inherited from God a place, purpose, authority, the whole earth and God's own image and likeness. And what I would say is that the man has rejected that inheritance, but not by turning away from the inheritance. He's rejected the inheritance not by saying, I don't want it. That's, that, would be, that would be bad, but what he has done is worse. He's rejected the inheritance by taking it, by taking what God has given him and spending it on his own foolishness and lusts and pleasures. That, I actually believe, is the fundamental reality of our sin, that we have taken what God has given us, namely, and most importantly, his own image, and his own likeness, and we have spent it on ourselves. And God's plan has always been to adopt us back, to make us his children, and give us back that inheritance. He predestined us for this adoption and this inheritance, as Paul says, and he accomplished that plan through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.16, Paul says, If we are children, then we are also heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Here, here, the inheritance, it says, is of God. It is from the very storehouse of possessions that are his. We stand in line to receive what belongs only to God himself. That's why he can say, all that is mine is yours in the parable. It says that we also share this inheritance with Christ, that ultimately what is Christ's is ours. And it says that we will be be glorified with Christ. This means that Christ's, ultimately his life and his resurrection and his victory over death is ours. That may be the greatest possession of all, 
This is a victory that we possess and that lasts forever, forever because death has no sting or power anymore over him. So it doesn't have any sting or power over us. And also, my favorite word in the Bible right now, it also says with. We will be glorified with Christ. This inheritance is found in Christ and with Christ. The inheritance is Christ himself. It's his own life and his death as a payment for our, for our purchase, but it's also his resurrection life as our home and dwelling place. To dwell with Jesus is a glory and a wealth of blessing that surpasses anything that we could ever imagine. Now, last week, if you're here, I accidentally threw Bear under the bus by blaming him for the broken window in my dad's door. Today, let me explain to you how sweet he is, if not a little bit impatient. We were talking about, in his bed one night, how exciting it is that someday we will see Jesus. We will see him with our actual eyes, physical eyes. I think oftentimes of the idea of him descending from the clouds, that there will be a moment somewhere, probably not Boise, it would be awesome if it was Boise, but somewhere where his physical feet and the scars on the bottom of his feet will break through the clouds and be visible to our eyes and we'll see him come. But we were talking about what it means to actually physically see and be with, with Jesus, truly with Jesus. We were describing to each other the, the warmth and the joy of just hugging him and staying there and resting. And Bear, he's an affectionate boy like his dad, um, despite his enormous nine-year-old frame, he cuddles harder and longer than any of our other boys. And it didn't take long for us before he was crying uncontrollably. And he was saying, I just want to see Jesus now. He was so upset. And I thought, me too, Bear, you're right. You're right. That is the most amazing thing to anticipate. That rest and that moment will be better than anything we could ever achieve, anything we could ever accomplish or gain in this life and it will be ours for eternity. So the inheritance that is laid up for us is everything, every spiritual blessing. It is salvation, reconciliation to God, the life of his son, life as his children, life with his children, an eternal home with God and is Christ himself and it's all of creation, all things. So the second question is how sure and secure is our inheritance? A Washington Post article I stumbled across uh, from actually earlier this year was talking about how common it is for stress and self-doubt to, to plague the mental health of those in line to inherit mega wealth from their parents, some of the richest people in the world who stand to make millions or billions uh, from their inheritance are plagued uh, by doubt and fear. At one point the article reads, uh, those born into immense wealth are liable to become haunted by constant fear of losing their inheritance. And I think, that makes sense. Why, why wouldn't you be stressed about that? Why wouldn't you be anxious to be promised such wealth, to in, in every legal sense have possession over such wealth, yet also have no way of ensuring that that wealth is secure or that the one making the promise can fulfill it or won't change their mind about you someday? It would make sense to be anxious. So how about us? Our adoption into the family of God 
has been finalized and paid for. If you're saved, you're promised everything. And here we actually see a little bit of the tension, both of having something and waiting for something. Paul even describes uh, that today we can enjoy what he calls a, a deposit or a down payment of the inheritance that we will ultimately receive in full when Christ comes. And so while we wait, how do we avoid spiraling with fear that maybe we will lose that inheritance or maybe we never were adopted? How do we know? A common and a probably terrifying question, maybe you've heard it or maybe you even identify with it, is can I know for sure that I'm saved? Have I been adopted by God? Am I actually an heir, a child of God? Now we could go to several places in Scripture to think to, to give us that assurance, but let's just consider three things uh, that are here uh, in these last couple of verses. Three reasons that you can know your inheritance is secure and sure. One is God's sovereignty, the Holy Spirit, and then the simplicity of our participation in it. One, God's sovereignty. This plan and your adoption and the inheritance of the wealth of God began in his mind before the foundations of the world. Any inheritance is only as reliable and trustworthy as the one giving it. And God is the only perfect promise keeper. Romans 8, 31 to 32 says this. I think this is really fascinating. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? I like that question. It's, it's saying, how could God not keep his promise? And the reason why we can ask such a question is because he gave the eternal life of his own son. How could he not keep his promises? It's a rhetorical question, obviously. The second is that Paul says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The analogy that we might have of this idea of, of sealing is probably the, the wedding ring. When we pledge ourselves to someone else and we, in a sense, place our, our seal on them, not as a possession, so to speak, but as a, ultimately as a reminder of our promise to them. And God, it says, has given us a seal. And it's not a stamp. It's not a ring. It's the very life of God himself who he says he's given to dwell in our hearts. God's spirit, his own spirit, is given to us as a pledge, as a seal, as a promise that the, that the, um, that the things I've promised you, I will fulfill. Romans eight fourteen to 17 says this, For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now here, I know you maybe heard this verse before, but I want to make it clear that Paul is not describing the gentle cooing of a baby as if this is the verse that allows us to approach God and say, Daddy, when we're praying to him. He's not saying Abba like a babbling baby. That's not what this is. He's describing a baby that is crying out in fear. It is the converse of the fact that we've not been given this spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. It's this spirit that, that actually 
causes us. It's the Spirit of God. When we are afraid, when we are anxious, or when we doubt, it is the Spirit of God in us that causes us to cry out to the Father, to seek the Father. And then he echoes back to us and responds to that cry by saying, you are God's child and you need no other assurance. That is what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit echoes within us in moments of fear, causing us to cry out to the Father and answering that, that call and that cry by reminding us that you are God's child, you need no other assurance. I've not had this uh, conversation specifically, uh, but it is not hard to imagine. Or maybe you have, or maybe you can relate to it. Uh, but someone asks, I'm afraid that I'm not saved, or I don't feel the Holy Spirit, and I'm afraid that I don't have him. And this motivates questions like, how can I know that I'm truly saved? And my answer, though it's probably not a foolproof answer or fully satisfactory, but my answer would start with, to be, to be concerned is a good sign. To be concerned over your fate is a good sign. The Spirit of God causes us to cry out for assurance. And the Spirit of God provides that assurance by reminding us that we are His children. We were never promised that we would always feel it, but we are promised that he who promised is faithful and will keep his promises. So it's the sovereignty of God that reminds us that this is sure. It is the sealing and the, the witness of the Holy Spirit echoing in us that reminds us and assures of us of our adoption and salvation. And then lastly, I would say it's the simplicity of our participation in this, of our, of our receiving of these things. Paul says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. It's been echoed all throughout Paul's prayer here. If it's not clear already, let's state it again. You can do nothing and have done nothing to contribute to and gain your own salvation. You can do nothing and have done nothing to contribute to your salvation other than providing the need for it. So you do nothing to gain your salvation and the inheritance except ultimately believe that you can do nothing. And believe here, as Paul says, that it was planned, paid for, and given to you according to nothing else but God's grace alone through Christ's blood and not yours. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's the thing that we, it says we heard and we believed. How, how terrifying, absolutely terrifying and stress-ridden would it be to believe that you must earn your way to God? If you harbor this thought, even just a little bit. I think that you will ultimately be plagued just like those rich kids with fear that maybe I didn't do enough. Maybe I didn't do enough good works or maybe I didn't go to church enough or read my Bible enough or care enough. But if you trust in the eternally sufficient life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I think you can always joyfully declare it was never me and it was always him. If it was anything else other than this simple call to give up, like we talked about last week, to forever stop trying and trust only in him, if it was any other way, we would have infinite reasons to not know and not trust and not believe and not be assured. But I think it's actually the simplicity of this, that it is nothing that we do. It's our reception and our belief and our trust, ultimately, that it was all done, planned, paid for, and given according to God's grace and nothing that we've done. Last, these will be really short, is the response of God's heirs. 
the response, the proper way to respond is as it says, to the praise of God's glory. So at the very least, we worship and we praise God. It requires us to be reminded daily of these things, of this truth. This is why we said last week we are, we are called to relive the gospel and its effect on our life by living in the same posture of repentance and faith on a daily basis. And that if it doesn't provoke us to praise and worship, then we're, then we're, then we're missing it. We're not doing it right. The other thing I think it means, the other proper response is Ephesians 2 through 6. I think this is what Paul gets at. Is that given all these things, his desire ultimately we'll read next, next week is that we would know them, that we would really truly grasp and they would, they would fill our hearts and minds and our lives. We really know these things. Um, and that ultimately it would unite us. It would be a thing that brings us together for worship, that we would love the church, that we would be um, gracious towards other sinners who have believed the same thing and who have come together to worship God with us, uh, that we would be hospitable to outsiders, that we would have a, an air of grace and repentance and faith all the time. It would color everything that we do, and particularly that it would unite us as God's family uh, so that we can continue to fulfill the purposes he's created us for, and so that we can fully realize and begin even more and more to experience the deposit, the down payment, the preview, so to speak, of the inheritance that's going to be ours forever in eternity. So that's the, the rest of Ephesians, which we will, we will talk about in the weeks to come. Father, uh, we are forever grateful and will be forever grateful. And I pray that you would uh, provoke in us a, a true knowledge and understanding of what you've done for us, how you've planned in your infinite wisdom and the, the pleasure and counsel of your own will to work all these things out through your son, through his life, all grace, all mercy that we've received and nothing that we have contributed to it. We praise you. I pray that that would ultimately provoke our singing, our fellowship, our prayers, our intimacy together, our desire to follow you and to obey you and to see the life of the gospel lived out more and more in our life uh, individually and as a community in our neighborhoods and our workplaces, that all of this would be motivated by a constant remembrance that you are gracious and that you've lavished grace on us in your son, Jesus. So we thank you, we praise you, we give you all the glory in your son's name. Amen.